This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Please take your Bible and open with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3. This evening we're going to pick up with our study of Colossians. And we've come into the third chapter of this book and we're kind of entering the final section of the book. And in this final section, Paul turns our attention towards our relationship with each other as Christians. Uh, In this epistle, specifically Colossians, as in many of Paul's letters, uh, he's not so much focusing on the individual as he is addressing Christians as a group. Our King James translation is helpful to us here uh, because when you see... In the, in the King James, you see thee or thou, you know that that is singular. It's, it's directed towards an individual. When you see ye or you, that's plural. It's directed to the group. And if you look at the epistles, uh, Paul's epistles especially, you see a whole lot more ye and you than you do thee and thou. He's addressing Christians as a group, and he's focusing often on how Christians are a group. You know, often we can think of the Christian life and we can think of scripture very individualistically. It's about me. So we read a passage and we say, what does this say to me? And that's good. God's word is meant to be personal. But perhaps it would be better and more accurate for us to to think not me, but we, us. Because... As important as it is for each of us to have a thriving personal relationship with God, the Christian life cannot be properly lived in isolation. There's an idea out there sometimes that the the pinnacle of spirituality is solitude. And there's a time and a place for time spent alone. And I thank God for the time we can spend alone with him. But that is not the pinnacle of spirituality. If we look at it scripturally, the pinnacle of spirituality is community. Christians together serving and worshiping and honoring God. Now forgive me for um, this, this image, but a part of the body separated from the rest is hideous and grotesque. But when it's united with the rest of the body, properly functioning... It can be a part of something beautiful. Christianity, as God intends it, is about us glorifying and serving God together. And so for the remainder of this book of Colossians, Paul is going to address some of the truths we need to consider as we think about God in community, us together as believers. And so we're going to consider uh, some of these verses tonight And I want us to to think this way as we look as we work through this passage together. That nothing in our Christian our spiritual life is about just the individual, it's also about the group. And so tonight we're going to consider that fact as we consider the one another of the Christian life. Now, this is a phrase that we find a couple of times in the verses we're going to look at tonight. But it's a phrase that we find throughout the the New Testament. It's sprinkled through uh, the epistles. And it's an idea that crops up over and over. And so I want us tonight to do our best to get our eyes off of ourselves as individuals. And to see ourselves as part of a group. Part of the wonderful body of Christ. And we're going to consider some foundational principles that inform us in how we ought to behave as part of that group. So take a look with me, please, at Colossians 3. First, let's look at verses 8 and 9. The Bible says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Now obviously, this passage has a bearing on the actions of the specific Christian. These are things that we personally need to give attention to. 
And we often consider them specifically in that context, but consider how that sin affects the body. In the Christian community, sin is cancer. Paul challenges us here to remove all of these things from the group. He's speaking to the Christians in, as a group, and he's saying, these are things you need to get out of the assembly. They need to come out of the body. He calls out some specific sins. And consider how these specific sins can, can act like cancer in the body of Christ. So he talks about anger. It's the idea of hostility towards other people. He talks about wrath, the idea of an angry outburst, uh, lashing out at someone. He talks about malice, that's, that's spite or holding something against someone else. Blasphemy, that's the idea of derogatory or hurtful language. Filthy communication, that's having a foul mouth. And lies, we know what lies are, right? But think about all of those things and how if those things get into the body, the kind of damage that can do. If those things get into the church, what does that do to the body of Christ? That's why I say that sin is cancer. And I don't mean by that to make light of cancer by throwing that term out there. Quite the contrary. I want us to recognize the seriousness of what we're talking about. As Paul lists through these things, it's easy for us to, to kind of just rattle them off in our mind and then move on. But these sins, and sin in general, like cancer, is destructive. It's pervasive. It profoundly affects the lives of those whose life it touches. Some of you know that all too well when it comes to cancer. And the thing with cancer is, as with sin, it starts out small. But if it's not radically removed, then it begins to permeate more and more until it eventually takes over and corrupts the whole. Sin is like that. Sin can get just a tiny little foothold in someone's life or in a church. And if it's left unchallenged, that foothold will grow until it's everywhere, until it's infecting and destroying the entire body, the entire community. A little sin allowed into a fellowship of believers can bring down an entire church. It's like the fictional story of the Dutch boy and the dyke. You've likely heard this story before. This little boy, Peter, lived in Holland. And in Holland, and this part is not fictional, they have things called dikes. Um, see, the thing is, with Holland, it's below sea level. And so uh, that can be a problem, flooding and all that. So they build these things called dikes. Uh, it's, it's dirt and, and rocks and that sort of thing that they build up to, um, to make a wall so the, the seawater can't come in. And of course, it's very important for those dikes to remain intact, for them to be cared for properly. Well, in this fictional story, this boy Peter is coming home from an errand at the end of the day, and he notices that the water outside the dike is, is rough that evening, all right? There's a storm going on. The water is, is crashing against the dike, but of course, the dike is, is holding against that. No worries, right? But he's walking along, and he notices a little trickle of water coming through the dike. And uh, he, he sees the water. He knows water through a dike isn't good. So he goes up, he puts his finger in the hole. And then he thinks, what am I going to do now? So he calls out for help, but it's late in the day. Nobody's passing by. No homes are nearby. And so nobody hears him. He continues to cry out, but all night long he's there, finger in the dike, keeping the water from coming through. Until finally in the morning, somebody passes by, finds the, the boy, calls for help. They get people there to, to repair the dike, take care of it, and take the boy home. Now, that never really happened. But imagine a small hole in a dike that's made out of earth and stone. It might only permit a small trickle of water to flow through. 
that's not going to hurt anybody, right? A, a few little drops of water coming through, not a big deal. That's not going to flood somebody's house. It's not going to, to, to flood fields and destroy crops. But of course, if that's allowed to continue, what's going to happen? The hole's going to get bigger and bigger. More and more earth and stones will be washed away until whole sections of the dike would, would begin to, to crash down. Whole sections of the countryside would be flooded, causing um, mass destruction. Someone needed to plug that tiny hole. And it's, it's funny to think about that, that story because it seems like such a tiny little thing to do. You know, just stick the finger in the hole, this little boy. But we ought to have the same attitude that boy had when it comes to sin in the body of Christ. Sin is cancer in Christ's body. It needs to be eradicated. It needs to be stopped. It needs to be shut off at the source as quickly as possible. It's easy with something like that to say it's no big deal. There's just a little bit of water coming through. That's not going to hurt anybody. There's just a little bit of sin in my life. There's just a little bit of sin in the body. There's just a little bit of sin in the church. That's no big deal. If it gets to be a gaping hole in the dike, then we'll deal with it. That's a problem. But a little bit, no big deal. Our attitude towards sin in the body ought to be put it off, get rid of it, get it out. Because if it's allowed into the body of Christ, it's going to be like a cancer to destroy and to grow and to consume more and more in its path. So we need to consider the nature of sin and how this has an effect just not just on our lives individually, but, but on each other as believers. But there's more for us to consider here about a relationship with each other in Christ. So take a look with me, please, at verse 10. It says, uh, in verses 8 and 9, he said, uh, you've put off the old man with his deeds. And then he says in verse 10, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So we find here, and we'll take a look at verse 11 in just a minute, that identity is important. Your identity in Christ is vital. Now the terminology here I think is really powerful. Uh, so if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, you don't need to turn there, but there you're probably familiar, uh, in that verse, the Bible says that God made mankind in the image of God. And uh, much has been said about all that's involved in that. But it's an amazing truth that man is made, mankind is made in the image of God. Well, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, man fell, that image was marred. And from that point, the image of God in man has been marred in every single human being who's been born. With one notable exception, of course, Jesus Christ. But Paul says here, in Colossians 3, that those who know Christ have put on the new man, they've received Christ, they've taken him and his spirit on, and now Christ is the motivating influence of life. But he's saying when that happens... The image of God in man, which was renewed, I'm sorry, which was marred at the fall, is renewed. The Christian has the potential to portray the image of God, not perfectly, but in a way that gives a beautiful glimpse into that image as it was in the Garden of Eden. So God made man to be his image bearer. And sin mars that image, but in Christ, that image can be restored. And once again, we can be those who portray the image of God to this world. What an amazing truth. What a beautiful concept. Our identity is important, and as those who are Christ, our identity is him. It's Christ. Jesus Christ is the new man. He is the perfect representation of the image of God. He's our savior, our master, our leader. 
And so my identity matters because as a believer, my identity is this. I am his and he is mine. I am new because now my life is not my own. My life is all about Christ in me. So in that sense, identity is so important. And he's saying, this is your identity as believers. You've put on the new man. You've put on Christ. And in Christ, the image of God is renewed. And once again, you can portray that image to the world. That's our identity as believers. And that's so important. But there's another aspect to identity that I want to consider. And we see that in verse 11. So I'll back up, read verse 10 again, and then we'll continue into verse 11. And it put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Our identity is important because our identity is in Christ. But there are some parts of our identity that may not be as important as we think. So let me ask the question, what defines you? What makes up your identity? Let me use myself, all right? So what is it that defines me? Is it my skin color? Is it my sex? Is it my, uh, my marital status? Is it the generation I'm a part of? Is it my social status? What is it that defines who I am? And turn that around on yourself. What is it that defines you? Paul says in, these verse, in this verse, verse 11, that in Christ there is neither, and then he goes on to talk about distinctions that would have been very important in the society of his time. He talks about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Was that important to people in Paul's time? Absolutely. He talks about the distinctions between different ethnic and cultural groups. He talks about the distinction between free people and slaves. All distinctions that would have been very important to the people of of Paul's day. But Paul says in essence that those distinctions are nothing in Christ. Now what does he mean by that? Does he mean that God doesn't see color? Does he mean that God is oblivious to the difference between a slave and a master? Is that what Paul is saying here? That God doesn't see those differences. He he doesn't see any of the, the cultural or ethnic or social differences that we see. Well, of course we recognize that God knows and sees all. But does this mean then that we as believers are to pretend that we don't notice when Christians are different from us, culturally, ethnically, or socially? Is that what he's saying here? That we should, uh, we should seek to be blind to the differences there are between different people. It's helpful to look at another passage that talks about this. In Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28, Paul is really expressing kind of the same concept here, um, but the wording is a little bit different. He says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So if we say, that God doesn't recognize any distinctions, then if we're carrying that into Galatians, we would say that God doesn't recognize or care about the distinction between male and female. Something we understand certainly from scripture is not true. So it's not that God doesn't see the distinctions or that they have no meaning. So what is God saying here? What what ought our attitude to be to the differences there are between people, the the things that identify people as different from others. Well, Paul is saying that in those areas, identity is not as important as you think. 
What Paul is expressing is the truth that Christ transcends culture. Christ swallows all those distinctions into himself. God has created diversity and among human beings, and he loves that diversity. In fact, Revelation 21 suggests that that diversity is going to be one of the beauties of the New Jerusalem. But man takes those differences and draws boundaries. Man shuns or belittles those who are different. Man makes the worth of a person all about those identifying factors. And you know, this can be carried to a ludicrous point sometimes in our society. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but forgive me guys with much fuller beards than I have, but men who make their beard the defining aspect of their identity. Ludicrous, isn't it? But does it happen? People who make a certain fashion style or a particular name brand their identity. Silly, but does it happen? People who make a certain diet or a certain workout routine their identity. People who make their personality type the defining aspect of their identity. You know, sometimes it looks like, it, it looks like people, and I'm afraid that we Christians too quickly pulled into this as well. It looks like people are frantically looking for ways to draw lines and say, I'm like this and you're not. I'm unique and different from you in this way. And society is searching for those different identifying factors, some way that I can stand out from others, some way that I can say, I'm a part of this club and you don't get to be. I'm special because of this, and you're not. That is not of Christ. Instead of leading us to worship the differences, Christ takes all the legitimate distinctions between people, and he makes them what they ought to be by taking the throne over it all. When Christ is in charge, we don't have to be blind to the differences but they become what they ought to be. It's not one is better than the other. One has more worth than the other. But God can use each one in a unique way. And so in Christ, that doesn't matter compared to our identity in Christ. We're not all the same, but we're all of equal importance in the body of Christ. And those distinctions are not the defining characteristics of our identity. It's not the fact that I am white or married or middle class or a millennial or a male that is the source of my worth. Those things are of little importance when it comes to my identity. What is of supreme importance? I am in Christ. That's what matters. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, you have put on the new man. In Christ, you have the image of God. That's what matters about your identity. Don't get lost in all of these other things. With all the silliness flying back and forth when it comes to the matter of identity, I am so glad that Christians can have a sane, settled perspective on the whole matter. As we think of one another, identity is important. Not individual cultural and social identity, but shared identity in Christ. Paul goes, in, goes on then to share some of the graces that ought to mark our behavior towards one another in the body of Christ. So let's continue on in the passage. Take a look with me now at verses 12 and 13. He says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, 
forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, that's quite a list of virtues that we ought to put on in our relationships with each other. Again, remember, this is about our relationships with others. So we look at a list like this and we say, say, how are these things going to affect the way I'm going to treat my brothers and sisters in Christ? And we could take the time to look at each of those concepts individually and that would be worth our time. Um, we're going to move on quickly through this. But I want to focus in on the key, the virtue to which we ought to give our highest attention. All of these things that we see in verses 12 and 13 are important, they're essential, but Paul goes on to say in verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. We find that as we consider one another, charity is essential. There is one thing that if it is truly in someone's life and heart, it will make them a caring and kind and humble and gentle and patient and forgiving person. If this is at the heart, then all those things in verses 12 and 13 are going to be the natural outflow of that. And that, that thing, that key, of course is Christ, but the one virtue that serves as the fountain for all the others is charity. Now, uh, most of you are probably aware that this word charity is translated from the Greek word agape, which is sometimes translated love, and other times, as here, it's translated charity. Jesus himself made it very clear that this virtue, love, charity, is at the heart of living life God's way. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked the question in verses 36, verse 36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus goes on to say, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything commanded in the law, Jesus says, hangs on these two laws. Love God and love your neighbor. That statement is pretty astounding. And it's repeated in scripture, uh, Romans 3, Galatians 5, that principle is shared there as well. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If biblical love, if biblical charity is in you, you're going to fulfill the law. That is the power of true charity at work in someone's life. So that begs the question, what is charity? Now when we think of charity, uh, we often immediately think of giving. And we don't think so much of feeling as we think of action. And I think that's helpful because though there is affection involved in true godly love, at its heart, it's about giving. It's about commitment. It's about action. The nature of charity is explained in great detail in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and I would say that if, if there was one definition that could rise from that chapter of Scripture more than any other, it would be this. Charity is giving sacrificially of oneself for the good of others. That's biblical charity. And that is the attitude we ought to have towards one another in the body. Paul is saying, you need to give attention to putting on all of these things in verses 12 and 13. But above all that, you need to have that spirit, that, that heart of charity towards one another a willingness, a readiness to give sacrificially for the good of each other. If that's present in the body, then all the rest of it is going to follow naturally. Christ is the head of the body. 
And I don't think it would be off base to suggest that charity is the heart. In the body of Christ, he, Christ, is in charge. He's calling the shots. But charity, godly love, keeps things going. Charity binds the whole body together and keeps it acting in obedience to Christ and for his good. Charity, Paul calls it the bond of perfectness. Perfectness, that's the idea of completeness, maturity. He's saying if it's going to be a body that is mature, healthy, strong, complete, charity is what's going to bind it all together. Charity is absolutely essential. But let's continue. I want to consider another vital principle that needs to guide our relationships with one another. Take a look with me at verses 15 and 16. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. These two verses introduce us to an interesting concept, and that is the idea that submission breeds ministry. We like to think that the key to usefulness is control. So the more that I can take control of my own abilities, my own resources, the more useful I can be. The more that I have control over my finances, personally, the closer I hold them, the more useful I can make them. The more that I have control over everything that I own, the more that I have control over my time, the more that I hold those things to myself, the more useful I can make them, the more effective I can be. These verses suggest that it's only when we give up control that we can really be useful. Notice what Paul says. He tells them to submit to the peace of God. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Don't grab the rule yourself. Let him, let his peace rule in you. And then, in essence, he tells them to submit themselves to the word of God. He tells them to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. So he's saying, submit to God, submit to God's peace, submit to the word of God, and what's going to happen? You're going to be able to have an impact on your brothers and sisters in Christ. You submit yourself to God's peace and to God's truth, and that's going to be able to flow out of you. And he uses this, he specifically talks about uh, these, these songs, using psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to minister to each other, to teach and to admonish. But what's going to lead to that happening? Submission has to happen first. I submit to God, then God can use me in the lives of others. Now there's a lot that could be said about these verses. And... Uh, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things. As we think about, it, it, it seems almost random sometimes that Paul pulls this idea of music into this passage. You say we're talking about all these spiritual things and, and then all of a sudden here's music. Where did that come from? But it shows us the important role that music can play in the work that God wants to do. And I just want to point out two things. First of all, the nature of music as a teacher. How did you learn your ABCs? You say, I don't know, it was too long ago. All right. You probably do know how you learned your ABCs. You learned them in song form. And if, we, if I started leading us, I'm sure that we could sing out with gusto tonight. We're not going to do that, all right? But there's a reason that somebody put the ABCs to song, and that song continues and continues and continues. And educators use songs for all kinds of things. Um, there's, I've heard several songs that try to put the 50 states to music. I'm not sure that any of them did a good job with it. But educators are looking for songs to use as a tool. Why? Well, songs stick in our mind in a way that spoken words don't, right? And they play over and over and over again and, and cement those things into our minds. And that's not just true in the classroom, 
that's true in church and in your home. And so Paul says here that songs in a special way can teach and admonish. For that reason, we need to give a lot of attention to our music. And Pastor, of course, has spoken from this, about this from the pulpit several times. But for better or worse, we are learning about God from the songs that we hear and sing about God. And the question is, what are we learning about God? Are we learning what the Bible says about God? Or are we learning ideas that are contrary to what scripture says about God? Paul says, your music has a unique opportunity to teach, to to do this work of instruction and even admonishing, working in the lives of others to say, come on, come on, follow the Lord, serve the Lord. The songs can do that. And so what are the songs that we're exposing ourselves to doing? Specifically, the songs that have to do with the Lord and his word. So songs have, certainly have a nature as a teacher. We need to consider that. We need to take advantage of it. We need to seek to use that truth for God's glory. But the other thing I wanted to draw your attention to is the dual nature of this. So he speaks about songs as a teaching tool, and then he goes right on and talks about songs as worship to God. And I love that. Because isn't that what happens when we come together for church? The songs strengthen our faith. They grow our understanding of God. And at the same time, we're lifting them in worship to him and it's praise to him. And so it's a blessing to us. It's a blessing to God at the same time. But if we're to use the powerful tool of music and other means of ministry effectively, we need to get a hold of this idea that submission is what leads to ministry. We submit ourselves to God and that's what's gonna make music and other means effective in the lives of others. Since we're talking about music, did you know that music has rules? Actually, each song comes with its own rules. So there's time signature, There's key signature. There's instructions about tempo and volume, which may very well change many times throughout a song. And let's not forget, you have to read the music the right way. So you have to obey the signs for treble and bass clef. You have to pay attention to whether a note is a 16th note, an eighth note, a quarter note. You have to properly read the position of the note on the staff. There's a lot of rules to follow. And an individual musician in an orchestra may have incredible skill. But if they're going to play their part properly, they have to submit themselves to the music and they have to submit themselves to the conductor. As soon as they stop following the music, as soon as they stop following the conductor, it doesn't matter how beautiful what they're playing is, it's no longer contributing. It's messing everybody else up. If a musician strays away from the music or the leading of the conductor, they're no longer effective. In fact, they may well, very well ruin the piece. The best member of an orchestra is one who is submitted. And so it is with the body of Christ. We must submit to be useful. We need to submit to the word of God and we need to submit to the direction of God. And if we're following the music and we're following the conductor, then we can start to be effective together as a body for the glory of God. But if we're trying to go over here and do our own thing, trying to make something beautiful all our own in our own strength, guess what's gonna happen? we're actually gonna damage the work that God is trying to do. It's only as we submit to him that we're gonna be effective for his glory. 
we've considered a lot of principles about our, our life together as believers. I want us to consider one final principle and then we'll wrap it all together. This is the most important principle we'll consider tonight. We find it in verse 17. Paul says, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So as we work together, as we live out our Christian lives together, we must remember that Jesus is worthy. And this this idea that Paul gives us in this verse is so simple and it's so profound. I really don't need to give much explanation to what he's saying in verse 17 because it's so clear and it's so simple. But think about how this idea of doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus could transform your life. So what are you going to do tomorrow? You might go to work. You might take care of the kids. You might serve as caretaker for someone. You might not know what you're going to do except continue to struggle with pain or sickness. You might be planning to enjoy some summer vacation. Whatever you may be doing, how would it change things if with every time you speak and every action you take, in your mind you say, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. What would that change? How would my life look different tomorrow if I put that into action? And every time I speak to someone, I'm saying, I am speaking in Jesus' name. Every decision I make, I say, I'm making this decision in Jesus' name. The way I respond to a difficult situation at home or at work or with relatives, in my response I say, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. Can you begin to get an idea of how much that could transform our lives if we truly took that idea to heart? And as a church body, we said, everything I do, I'm going to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We as a church, as we go out, whatever our responsibilities are, whatever it is we're involved in, we're going to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Consider the influence we could have. Consider how our church family could grow in, in fellowship with one another, in our witness for Christ, in the impact we're having on our community, if we just truly took this simple idea to heart and said, whatever I do, whatever I say, I'm doing it in Jesus' name. If I followed that rule, what would it fix in my life? How would it transform my relationships? How would it transform the way that we look at each other and the way that we treat each other as fellow members of Christ's body? It's a powerful thought. So as you think about this idea of one another, living the Christian life together, serving Christ together, worshiping him together, the fact that we are all a part of the body together, we need to realize we can't live the Christian life without each other. Do we really see it that way? Do we see this the way that God sees it? Or do we think, my Christian life is my own. I'm off living my Christian life over here, and we get together for church, and we talk about spiritual things together, but my Christian life is my own. It's just me and God. And I'm thankful for my church family, but that's my, that's my spiritual life. That's my walk with God. That is not how God sees it. It's got to be connected with the church family. It's got to be connected with other believers. And what we are doing is impacting and affecting each other. Every part of the body, the actions of every part of the body have an influence on every other part of the body. That is how God sees it. And I believe that's the idea that Paul is trying to get across in these verses. He says, we need to consider each other. We need to think about each other. We need to recognize how these things are having an impact on each other. We need, not tr- we need to not try to live the Christian life all by ourselves, 
We need to do it in community. Are we who we ought to be as Christians for the benefit of each other as well as for the glory of God? Perhaps you've heard of the Greek phalanx. This was a, um, a formation of heavy infantry that was used by the, the Greeks, uh, ancient Greeks and others, particularly during the reign of Alexander the Great. And the soldiers would stand right next to each other, shoulder to shoulder. They'd have their shield in their left hand, spear in their right hand. And so with his shield, each soldier would, would guard his left side and the right side of the soldier next to him, and then he would extend his spear. And so if it was done right, it creates this wall. And all you see, if you're the enemy soldiers, is this wall of spears and behind it a wall of shields. And it was a very effective formation and uh, led to victory in, in multiple battles. But a successful formation like this, a successful phalanx, could not tolerate a single lowered spear or a shield out of place. This formation was only as strong as its weakest point. Together, those individual soldiers could create something much greater than each of the parts separately. But they depended on each other. The individual identities faded into the whole. And together, they were far more than they could be alone. But they had to stay united. They had to stay connected. They had to stay committed to each other or all would be lost. Because as soon as one part of that formation started to drift apart or to buckle, the whole formation was in trouble. And so each soldier had to be aware of what was going on on either side. Each soldier had to obey the command of the, the commanding officer behind them. And as they did that, they could operate as a cohesive whole and they could serve as a seemingly unstoppable force in battles. But it, in this case, as in many other military formations, it was all about operating as one part of a group. It was about yielding to the leader and yielding to the needs of the soldier on either side. A phalanx was nothing if each member weren't completely committed to the rest of the formation. And so what about us? Do we see each other as fellow soldiers on the front line, shield to shield, depending on each other for strength, for protection, for victory? Do we really see one another and care for one another and give up personal glory and preference for the good of the whole? Do we recognize that we need each other? That we cannot have victory unless we are a part of the body in the way that God intends. There is no Christian, true Christian life without the one another. And each of us needs to do our part so that the whole can experience life and victory as God intends. So as we embrace, as we consider that fact, remember that in the body, sin is cancer. Identity is important. Charity is essential. Submission leads to ministry. And Jesus is worthy. So consider those facts. I want to read again through this entire passage we've considered together. Colossians 3, verses 18 to 17. Follow along with me and consider what we've thought about together tonight. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, 
even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. As fellow servants of Christ, we are truly blessed to have one another. We're blessed to have community and fellowship and camaraderie. But with that blessing comes a serious responsibility. We are responsible first to God, but also to each other to keep sin out of the body, to let love reign in our relationships with each other, to submit ourselves to God, and to keep Jesus central. With that sort of commitment to God and to each other, is there any limit to what the body of Christ can accomplish? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your perfect plan joining together your body. Thank you for the picture it is that your wisdom is so much higher than ours. Lord, you bring us together in Christ and make of us something we could never imagine being on our own. Lord, help us not be selfish, self-centered, but help us to see each other as fellow brothers and sisters, as our, our companions, our comrades, fellow members of the body, those on which we depend and those who depend on us. Lord, help us take seriously the responsibility of being part of your body. Help us to be serious about sin in our lives and in our church. Help us to truly submit to you, to do all to your glory, to see ourselves as who we are in Christ and not make much of all the other distinctions that the world says are so important. Father, help us live to your glory. Help us as a church here to truly live out what it looks like together to show forth the image of God. Help us to truly be a Christ-like church family. We love you. We thank you for the chance to be a part of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.